NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Republicans finally have a new House Speaker, but it doesn't mean the fighting is over. Find out what's next. And the Buffalo Bills are playing today for the first time since the team's safety, DeMar Hamlin, collapsed. Plus, in the world of graphic novel Shubik Lubik by Dina Muhammad, you have to be careful what you wish for. Every night I would think about the exact right wishes so they wouldn't backfire. And I, I definitely wasted a lot of time. <laughs> Turns out not all people think like that. <laughs> and a honeybee vaccine. It's Sunday, January 8th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Ahead of President Biden's visit to the southern border, hundreds of protesters turned out in El Paso this weekend, expressing anger over the administration's decision to expand the pandemic-era immigration policy known as Title 42. Father Rafael Garcia is a pastor at El Paso's Sacred Heart Church. You have all, all these folks here now that don't know what to do. Or, and uh, so it's a real, it's a real drastic situation for them. They're on the streets mainly. The White House announced last week that asylum seekers from Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Venezuela will be expelled to Mexico if they enter the U.S. illegally. President Biden is due to stop in El Paso later today on his way to the North American Leaders Summit in Mexico City. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a unilateral ceasefire for Orthodox Christmas on Friday and Saturday, but the Ukrainian government says it never happened. NPR's Tim Mack has more from central Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky wished his citizens a Merry Christmas, but also alleged that, quote, the world was once again able to see today how false any words of any level that sound from Moscow are. The Ukrainian military announced that Russia fired nine rockets and conducted three airstrikes on Saturday, when many Ukrainians celebrate Christmas. It also claimed that Russia carried out 40 shelling attacks across Ukraine, leading to wounded and dead civilians. In the central Ukrainian city of Dnipro, air alarms repeatedly sounded throughout the day as families sought to mark the holiday. Tim Mack, NPR News. Russia is vowing to press ahead with the war in Ukraine after ending President Putin's ceasefire. There has been more shelling in the eastern Donbass region, the front line. Ukrainian officials say at least one man was killed. Chinese travelers are preparing for their first Lunar New Year holiday in two years without travel restrictions. And international travelers began entering the country today after Beijing opened sea and land crossings, even as a massive wave of COVID infections spreading across the country, as NPR's Emily Fang reports. For many people, the Lunar New Year holiday week in late January is one of the few chances they get to take time off and travel home and see family. China's transportation ministry said it expected 2 billion people to make trips in the next 40 days. That's about double the number of trips people made last year, when the government was still imposing strict lockdowns and mandatory testing in an effort to keep out COVID. But now millions of people have been sickened in this latest wave, and public health experts worry that the Lunar New Year travel will spread infections further, from cities to poorly prepared rural areas. Emily Fang and Pure News. Pacific, uh, rather, police in western Germany have arrested an Iranian man suspected of preparing an Islamist-inspired attack using cyanide in the highly toxic poison ricin. He was taken into custody overnight along with another man during a raid. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation say they will not give up on their agenda. 
now that California Republican Kevin McCarthy finally secured the House Speaker post following a bitter and drawn-out fight within the GOP. Newton Congressman Jake Auchincloss says he thinks McCarthy is weaker after granting concessions to far-right Republicans. They really eviscerate the power of the gavel and instead allow individual House GOP members to gridlock Congress over individual issues. Auchincloss says he thinks Democrats can get legislation passed with the help of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Can he produce nine votes in the Senate to get through the filibuster? And then can we jam uh, Kevin McCarthy in the House to bring issues to the floor and get them done? Auchincloss says work on the desk ceiling will be crucial. Hardwick voters have rejected a proposal to build a horse breeding facility and racetrack at an existing 359-acre farm. In yesterday's special election, the unofficial results were 312 in favor and 830 opposed. Opponents of the proposal in the Worcester County town expressed concerns about traffic and animal rights issues. John Stefanini, who chairs the proposed facility's Corporate Compliance Committee, told Mass Live he'll decide by late next month whether to resubmit plans in Hardwick or elsewhere. The Roxbury Church that served as the Boston Church home of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. is hosting an MLK Day celebration this afternoon. Newly elected Attorney General Andrea Campbell will receive the 12th Baptist Church's MLK Award. She's the first black woman elected to a statewide office in Massachusetts. Other speakers today include Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Michael Curry, the president of the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers. It is 26 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs in the mid-30s. Lows overnight dropping to the mid-20s. Tomorrow starting off with clouds, then becoming sunny, and highs tomorrow in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thanks for being with us. After a tumultuous week, members of the U.S. House are finally sworn in and set to begin their work for a new Congress. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said after the historic stalemate and public fights among members of his own conference, he is betting his Republican majority is ready to get on the same page. I think what you will see by having this now, we've worked out how to work together. But with a divided government, working together could be an elusive goal. Joining me to discuss the next steps for Congress is NPR's congressional correspondent, Claudia Grisales. Welcome to the show, Claudia. Great to be with you, Aisha. So after the events of this week, what are Republicans' plans in this new era of divided government? Uh, There are plenty. Speaker McCarthy laid out a lot of those details in his speech after his election to lead the chamber. He said they'll focus on oversight of the Biden administration, lower lower government spending to help cut costs for families and address rising energy bills. This is all part of what he argues is a message voters sent during the midterms when a narrow Republican majority for the House was elected. You voted for a new direction for our country. You embraced our commitment to America. And now we're going to keep our commitment to you. 
He went on to say that his party's first bill will move to decrease funding for the IRS, that they'll push legislation to address immigration at the southern border, and the border will be the subject of one of their first hearings. But much of these efforts are not expected to go far with the Democratic Senate and White House. Still, the House already lost a week because of Republican infighting. Now they got to play catch up. What's right. on the what's on tap for this week? Before they can do anything, they have to pass a rules package for how this chamber will operate, as well as set up committees. This is on tap starting for Monday, and these rules are expected to include a slew of the deals McCarthy cut with his defectors. He comes into this role as one of the weakest speakers in recent memory. For example, one of the rules would allow one member, just one member, to trigger a vote to oust him as speaker in addition to allowing these defectors who are largely hardline right Republicans to sit on key committees. And we're expecting to learn more about this deal with his opponents as they work through the rules package in the coming days. And already some moderate Republicans are expressing opposition to the plan. So this could bring a whole new fight to the floor for the GOP. Okay. And now that Democrats are in the House minority, what's ahead for them? Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries did touch on this in his speech uh, over the weekend as they wrapped up the proceedings early Saturday morning. And in between digs against extremist elements in the Republican Party, Jeffries said this will not be an area where his party will compromise when we look at these extremist elements. He said the American people are understandably confused after the events of this week on the next direction for Congress. And he said, while he doesn't pretend to answer what that direction is, he said Democrats are ready to try to work together. Well, we do extend our hand of partnership to you and want to make clear that we extend and intend to try to find common ground whenever and wherever possible on behalf of the American people. But now Democrats will be playing defense as they, as they face new GOP oversight efforts and investigations into the Biden administration and top Democrats. In about the 30 seconds we have left, with all of this division, like what does it mean for major must-pass legislation? Well, that's the biggest concern. If Congress can get on the same page to keep the government funded and reach a deal on how to address the debt limit without allowing the country to go into financial default, spending was a key concern in this fight over the speaker's gavel, and the infighting we saw doesn't bode well for these concerns. But somehow, Congress and President Biden will have to find some sort of bipartisan path, path to get those major bills passed. That's NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Claudia, thank you so much. Thank you. It might not feel like it after the massive snowstorms that hit Buffalo, New York a few weeks ago, but some parts of the state just haven't had enough snow, especially for those who love to hit the trails in their snowmobiles. Later today on All Things Considered, hear what's happening in Big Moose, the snowmobile capital of the East, as they deal with a dearth of fluffy flakes. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Russia's war in Ukraine is causing a geopolitical earthquake across much of the world. The former Soviet republics of Central Asia are watching closely and wondering what this means for them. Over the centuries, the region has seen mighty empires rise and fall, including their own. NPR's Philip Reeves sent this report from the Silk Road city of Samarkand in Uzbekistan. 
Morning begins in Samarkand after a night of heavy snow. Workers scrape away ice from the feet of this ancient city's favorite sun. They're clearing the area around a giant statue of Timur, the 14th century warrior emperor, also known as Tamerlane. Historians over the centuries often portrayed Timur as a butcher, a marauding warlord from Central Asia who laid waste to cities from the Mediterranean to North India, sometimes piling up his enemies' skulls. Samarkand was the capital of his empire. Here, Timur is viewed rather differently. This is our hero, our Timur. Mastona Haidrava is trudging through the snow on her way to college. I think that he was the good person. He was the very kind as well. Kind? Yes, for his family, for his the country, for his the people. Laziza Nosorova's on her way to work. She's a teacher. He is very uh, great person, great and wise person, smart person. I mentioned Timur's reputation for violence. This person was a very great person in our Uzbekistan, and uh, that's all. <laughs> and that's all. <laughs> okay. When Uzbekistan gained independence after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, its government used Timur to try to unify the nation. He was promoted by the then president, the dictator Islam Kalimov, as the symbol of national identity, a heroic ruler from a golden age whose legacy in this city includes some of the world's most exquisite Islamic architecture. One example is the mausoleum in Samarkand, where Timur's tomb lies under a bright blue dome. A group of tourists is lining up to go inside. He was a great commander, a just emperor, and a patron of science, says Madima Salimova, who's a guide. Here, there's only one version of the Timur story. It's that of a great Islamic conqueror who put Central Asia squarely on the map. Once upon a time, Samarkand became the capital of the world under Amir Timur ruling. That map has changed entirely since then. These days, many struggle to pinpoint Uzbekistan on it. Central Asia tends to be viewed as a playing field on which others, especially Russia and China, compete for influence. The Soviet Union's long gone, yet Moscow still has huge economic and political clout, at least until now. Some here believe Russia's reach is weakened by the Ukraine war, and that while that map bears no resemblance to Timur's day, the wider world is beginning to pay more attention to Central Asia. We're driving through Samarkand in a taxi to a place that symbolizes these changes. It's a lavish complex of eight hotels that opened in September to host some of the world's most powerful leaders. President Xi Jinping of China, Vladimir Putin of Russia, Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India and a dozen others. In all, they govern half the population of the planet. They gathered here for a security summit that the Kremlin hopes proved to the West that Russia's far from isolated. As we gaze at these sparkling new structures on the old Silk Road, our Uzbek driver, Shazad Azimov, is full of pride. Before, people often didn't know where Uzbekistan is, he says. Now they do. Since that summit, there's been a parade of senior foreign visitors to Uzbekistan from the European Union, Turkey, the US and elsewhere. 
the Russians have dropped by to press the case for even deeper economic integration. Our politicians used to go there, says Uzbek economist Otterbek Bakirov. Now the Russians come here. Bakirov believes Moscow's attempting a larger geopolitical play. Russia has become weak in the West, he says, so it wants to be strong in the East. Yet the invasion of Ukraine has changed opinions here, says Abdullah Abdukadirov, an economist and former Uzbek government official. That was a tremendous shock to everyone, and that has changed the attitude, and that has changed the mindset of millions in here, including me. Central Asians are tired of giant neighbors trying to muscle in and impose their geopolitical wishes, says Abdukadirov. They may have whatever they want in their wish list, but we also have our wish list to change our society, to change our mindset, and to change our destiny. Abdukadirov says the time's come for Central Asian countries to unite and put their collective interests first in order to have a voice. It's now or never, he says. This kind of chances comes out maybe a hundred years in once. If we will lose that the momentum, then we will lose everything again. Unity is a tall order. Central Asia is notorious for border disputes and rivalries. Yet, as the people of the land of Timur know better than most, history is full of surprises. We have to just wake up. It's time. Philip Reeves, NPR News, Samarkand. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918, and coming up on Weekend Edition Sunday, a researcher discusses the significant decline in teenage pregnancies in the United States. Also, you'll hear about conditional approval for a new vaccine designed to protect honeybees. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Stay informed about a wide range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app anytime, anywhere. It's 26 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs reaching the mid-30s. Lows overnight dipping to the mid-20s, a mostly cloudy start tomorrow, then becoming sunny and Monday's highs in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. President Biden heads to El Paso, Texas today, his first trip to the southern border since becoming president. The trip comes as Biden is under political pressure to address border issues. Nearly 9,000 New York City nurses are poised to strike tomorrow amid failed talks with several major city hospitals. Wages and staffing issues are the major sticking points. And Buffalo Bill safety DeMar Hamlin has posted on social media for the first time since he collapsed on the field in Cincinnati nearly a week ago. Hamlin tweeted that the response to his injury will make him stronger. The Bills close out the regular season against the New England Patriots today. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Noom, a personalized weight loss program designed to give people knowledge to set new goals and the tools to stick to them for good. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It's the last Sunday of the NFL's regular season, normally a dramatic day as teams jockey for final playoff positions. But of course, the past week leading up to this moment was anything but normal. The alarming cardiac arrest of Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin on the field shocked many across the nation and galvanized support for the 24-year-old athlete as he recovered. Today, perhaps the biggest game on the schedule is in Buffalo, where the Bills are playing for the first time since Hamlin's collapse during the Monday night football game. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman joins me. Good morning, Tom. Hi, Isha. So, Tom, let's first let's start with Demar Hamlin. What's the latest on his condition? I, I guess you can call it a recovery benchmark for our time, but he posted on social media yesterday for the first time since his collapse, and he said in part, the love has been overwhelming. I'm thankful for every single person that prayed for me and reached out. If you know me, you know this only is going to make me stronger. Really, it's been a dramatic past couple of days. He had his breathing tube removed. He began talking, even FaceTimed his teammates. He's still listed in critical condition. But, you know, it's amazing, considering less than a week ago, his heart stopped during a game, then was restarted on the field. It's a testament to him being young, incredibly fit, and someone who got extraordinary medical care from the seconds after he collapsed up until now. So I guess we can feel a little more comfortable talking about football now, considering um, he is recovering or seems to be. As we mentioned, his team plays today hosting the, the New England Patriots. Even though the Bills have talked about their spirits being lighter, considering Hamlin's recovery, um, will it still be hard for them to go out and play? You know, it might be. Uh, football players have to push aside fear to play a violent game. But what they all witnessed with Hamlin was on another level, very traumatic. And, and when members of the Bills spoke publicly for the first time this week, quarterback Josh Allen said, it's hard not to let fear of what happened creep into your mind and something they've had to battle this week. Here he is. You know, we've been reassured this, this is the freakiest of freak accidents, and it took the worst possible timing for this to happen, but again, the mental aspect of it going out on that field, if you have that thought, that's putting yourself at risk even more, putting your teammates at risk even more. So, I mean, this is going to be, um, it's a Bills home game. It's going to be very emotional. But, you know, on the, the business of football, it's also going to be very meaningful as far as the playoffs for Buffalo too, right? Yeah, it is right. Uh, because the game where Hamlin collapsed, Buffalo versus the Cincinnati Bengals last Monday night, was ultimately canceled. It means those two teams will end up playing one less game than everyone else. They were both in the running for the top seed in their conference, especially Buffalo, which had the better record than Cincinnati. Now, Kansas City clinched that top seed in the conference with a win yesterday. But since Buffalo won't have the chance to match Kansas City's record and get the top seed, if Buffalo wins today 
and then plays Kansas City in the conference championship game in a few weeks, the NFL decided to try to even things out by playing that potential game at a neutral site. And so I understand Cincinnati will also be affected by this special plan uh, team owners will uh, approved. Yeah, that's right. Cincinnati could be involved in a coin flip to decide the site of one of its playoff games. Now, the Bengals reportedly don't like it, but the NFL explains, you know, this is an unprecedented situation. Not everyone can be made completely whole after the Buffalo-Cincinnati cancellation. Rich McKay is chairman of the NFL Competition Committee. He talked about this on Friday. We never went down this path and in this discussion of you're going to create perfect equity. You're not. Uh, the, the object here was to mitigate the circumstance that we were faced with. It was the right thing to cancel. So this is how the proposal came about. So, Aisha, a potential neutral site, a potential coin flip, two rare scenarios growing out of a traumatic week in the NFL, a week that amazingly is ending well. That's NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. After four days and 15 votes, Kevin McCarthy is now Speaker of the House. A group of ultra-conservative Republicans stood down on Friday after opposing McCarthy's bid all week. One of those congressmen is Andrew Clyde of Georgia. WABE's Sam Gringlis spent the day after that vote in Clyde's district asking his constituents about the protracted drama on Capitol Hill. Teresa Johnson has a texting group with five of her friends. My phone was blowing up all during this House vote. Every time they voted, I would get like 20 messages. Johnson says everyone in the group can't stand Kevin McCarthy. A big thorn has been his willingness to pass billions in aid for Ukraine. Johnson is a teacher, and she was asleep by the time McCarthy secured the speaker's gavel well after midnight. Now she's talking it over at a coffee shop with another friend, Allison Brewer, a school nurse. Did you watch all 15 votes, some of the 15 votes? No, sir. It got ridiculous. And I'm tired of people being paid to do ridiculous things with my tax dollars. Brewer thinks McCarthy should have just stepped aside, but she's glad her congressman, Andrew Clyde, didn't support him. Though now, Brewer's wondering why he backtracked. What is really going on in the background? I don't know that it's in the best interest of this community. This community is called Flowery Branch. It's got a little downtown near the shores of a popular reservoir, where the sprawl of Atlanta's far-out suburbs give way to the North Georgia mountains. Next door to the coffee place is an antique store where there's a sale going on. All of the Christmas is 25% off. The shop is packed with vintage furniture, art, and trinkets. Minton O'Neill is browsing with an iced drink in his hand, and he's pretty happy with the concessions Clyde and others extracted from McCarthy. Democratic politics is a messy thing. In the end, I think the ends justify the means. To win over the hard right holdouts, McCarthy agreed to rules that make it easier for them to oust the speaker, scuttle spending bills, and control what legislation makes it to the floor. I believe we have enough laws, and so I don't think gridlock's a bad thing if gridlock results in smaller, more conservative government. 
Closer to Atlanta, on the town green in suburban Sewanee, Christine Lewis is worried about that gridlock. She says McCarthy bending to far-right congressmen like Clyde comes at a cost. The deal they struck may make it difficult to fund the government or raise the debt ceiling, making a shutdown or default more likely. The whole process of somebody not winning and then continuing to make that many concessions to try and get people to support them, I just wonder, what do you have to give up in order to gain somebody's support? Lewis used to consider herself a Republican, but she's soured on the GOP in recent elections. And she says last week's drama only solidified her shift away from the party. I mean, it matters to me in that I think it's representative of how things are right now especially the divisiveness in politics and all of that. Across the park, Kabiru Vellani is resting on a metal bench. The 15 votes last week were the most to elect a speaker since 1859. But Vellani, he didn't follow any of them. Because none of these politicians work for the common people and working people like me, so I really don't care who's in the seat or not because I still have to work 75 hours a week to feed my family. For Vellani, it's a grind that makes this latest political battle in Washington feel pretty far away. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Sewanee, Georgia. Teen pregnancies are on the decline across the country. A new analysis by the research group Child Trends shows that among female teens, birth rates have gone down 77% in the past 30 years. Jennifer Manlove is a researcher with Child Trends and a co-author of the analysis. She joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So a 77% decline in teen births sounds very significant. What else did your research find? We did find that a generation ago, teen childbearing was much more normative than it is now. In 1991, an estimated one quarter of all 15-year-olds would have a birth before they reach age 20. And this declined to 6% in 2021, which is dramatic and, as you said, more than 75% decline. We also find that declines happen among all race ethnic groups, among younger and older teens, and across all states. And the declines have been sustained and even accelerated recently. I know that you said that birth rates had declined for teens among all races and ethnicities, but did you find any differences um, in birth rates, like, say, among the Black and Hispanic communities? Yes, we did. Um, Despite all our good news, racial and ethnic disparities still exist. And we found higher birth rates for Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous teens than for others. And we see that these disparities are due to a history of systemic racism in the United States. This has led to mistrust in healthcare, limited access to reproductive health, and reduced economic opportunities. How big is the difference, like, between Hispanic and Black communities and and Indigenous communities compared to white teens? Their birth rates are still about one and a half times the national average and are more than double the rates for white teens. Okay. But overall, there has been this major decline. What is driving this? 
The most immediate reasons behind the declines in teen births are delays in sex and increases in contraceptive use, particularly the use of the most effective contraceptive methods. For example, teens in the late 2010s were five times more likely to use IUDs and implants than teens in the late 2000s. But recently, there have also been declines in sexual activity among high school students. How does child poverty play a role in this? Like, is teen birth declining because child poverty is already on the decline? Or has child poverty gone down because of a decrease in teen births? Well, we do know that both child poverty and teen pregnancy have been declining together. Youth who grow up in poverty and in economically disadvantaged communities are at a much higher risk of teen births. In the past, researchers have assumed that there's a large impact of having a teen birth on subsequent poverty and poverty of children. However, once you control for economic environment growing up, there's much less of an independent impact of teen pregnancy on poverty. Really, delaying births among teens in poverty only improves their well-being if those teens have the supports they need to increase their education, find high-paying, high-quality job, and improve their economic opportunities. So this decline in teen births is a huge public health win still for teens, families, and their children. It, it means that fewer teens are becoming parents before they want to. So how do you think the Dobbs decision, um, which has allowed states to greatly limit abortion, um, do you, how do you think that affects this trend? Will it affect this trend? State-level restrictions that resulted from the Dobbs decision could disproportionately affect teens. Teens represent only 6% of all pregnancies, but a higher percentage of teen pregnancies end in abortion than pregnancies to women of older ages. Also, teens learn about their pregnancies later. They face parent consent laws, and they also have more difficulty traveling to access care or to receive medication abortion. Thus, there could be an uptick in teen births with these more restrictive state laws. Jennifer Manlove is a researcher with Child Trends. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The new Avatar movie, this one subtitled The Way of Water, has made more than a billion and a half dollars so far. And about two-thirds of that money is coming from movie theaters overseas. Lots of blockbusters do big business in other countries. Last year, Top Gun Maverick and Black Panther Wakanda Forever each brought in half of their ticket sales outside the U.S. and Canada. 
what does the pull of the foreign box office mean for Hollywood? Nancy Tartaglione is international box office editor and senior contributor for Deadline.com. She joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Are are those the kind of movies that do better outside the U.S.? You know, these kind of very big, traditional blockbuster movies, which, you know, either have action or fighting. Like, are those the type of movies that do well outside of the U.S.? Sure. I mean, you have to remember also that it's a big, (laughs) wide world out there. Certainly action is big overseas. One thing that doesn't always translate internationally is, is comedy. It tends to work in, you know, the Anglo-Saxon markets like the UK or Australia, and then to a degree also in Germany. What are the largest and most reliable markets overseas? I would imagine, you know, China is a huge market, but like, what are the markets that they're really focused on? I mean, China's huge, but it is unreliable (laughs) because the government controls what movies get in. So that's kind of just like icing at this point. But otherwise, you're mostly talking about the mature European markets. Elsewhere, you're talking about Korea. Korea is a massive market for Hollywood. Mexico, Brazil, big markets that are are typically reliable, I would say. There is this issue of some high-profile movies being censored in other countries, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody, for instance, had gay scenes removed in China. Are there concerns about making certain types of movies because they won't be allowed to be shown overseas? I mean, censorship has been around for a really long time. The issue with China, perhaps at a certain point when it was really booming, there were maybe more considerations for what would and wouldn't fly there. I think there's less of an, an intentional, I, I don't like the term kowtowing, but intentionally only targeting that. There is also censorship in markets in the Middle East. You know, there are just certain countries where you have to remove all scenes of intimacy. It doesn't matter if it's heterosexual, homosexual, whatever it is. In the past year, I believe Disney just sort of knew that they would have censorship issues in Saudi Arabia, so didn't even submit Strange World to the market. I mean, you know, sometimes you do hear this complaint from people that it's only movies like Fast and Furious or Marvel movies are getting made because they have to do all this overseas and make money. That's why these little, you know, cute little dramas can't get made anymore. I mean, look, you know, at the end of the day, Hollywood is an industry. It's a business. Those kinds of tentpoles, those blockbusters, they're they're highly important. But you can't just bounce from tentpole to tentpole. Markets do need, this isn't meant to sound pejorative, but filler product, that kind of middle of the road product. I think it's a legitimate concern. I think everybody would like for those movies to keep being made. It's very important to have diversity, you know, different types of movies. It's important to have variety. It's important to have something for everyone. These are ongoing conversations. That's Nancy Tartaglione of Deadline.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks again. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. When UMass Boston students return to the classroom tomorrow after the holiday break, they will be wearing masks. Masks are once again required in all campus buildings and buses, as well as at large outdoor gatherings. In making the decision, UMass Boston cited Suffolk County's classification as high risk for COVID transmission. 
Local police and state police are still investigating the disappearance of Anna Walsh of Cohasset. Police have concluded a ground search for the married mother of young children. A joint statement from state and local police said specially trained troopers, canine teams, and the state police air wing searched wooded areas near Walsh's home for two days. State police divers also searched a small stream in a pool. Authorities say Walsh has not been seen or heard from since the early morning hours of New Year's Day. If you are riding the MBTA's Green Line extension today, then expect delays. Shuttle buses are replacing trolleys all day between Medford Tufts and East Somerville. The T says the diversions are necessary to allow for emergency repairs to water lines that serve the Medford Tufts station. It's 26 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Temperatures reaching the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Two years ago, Michael Conlon was shot and killed by Newton police. From the beginning, this should never have happened. <laughs> now his parents are suing, arguing the city didn't respond correctly to their son's mental health crisis. You tell me that these individuals know what they're doing? Absolutely not. It cost Michael his life, us unbearable pain. Our story tomorrow on WBUR's Morning Edition. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at wtgrantfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. People with COVID-19 have suffered a number of symptoms like fatigue and loss of smell. One alarming side effect is losing your hair. Studies show that up to 30% of those who had a severe case of COVID-19 experienced temporary hair loss. Some people have shared their experiences on social media. One of the worst symptoms that I personally suffered from after COVID was the amount of hair that I lost. Am I the only one who's experienced major hair thinning around the hairline ever since I had COVID? So I had COVID for the first time ever six months ago. I noticed two months post-COVID, I started losing hair like crazy. In general, hair growth goes through a cycle. That's Dr. Parati Mirmirani. She's a dermatologist with Kaiser Permanente in Vallejo, California. It's in a growth phase for about six to seven years, depending on how old you are. It changes over your life cycle. And then it goes into a resting phase for a few months, and then it restarts again. So on a regular basis, you can expect to have about 100 to 200 hairs a day that will shed. There may be ups and downs, seasonal variations, age-related variations. She said COVID can mess with our hair cycles. It's kind of like a storm coming through, knocks off the blooms and the hair cycle will be disrupted. And that is exactly what happens with COVID. The body is paying more attention to healing from the virus, and so the hair goes into a, a resting phase. But she reminds us not to panic. Shedding is actually a sign that our hair is in recovery. What I do is I give them a mirror 
and I hold a white card up to your dark hair so that you can see those hairs that are regrowing. And I tell them, don't pay attention to the hairs coming out. I want you to visualize it, that the new hairs are pushing out those old hairs. So you've got new hairs coming in. Think of those new hairs, they are recovering. There are some treatments for hair loss, but the first step Dr. Mir Marani recommends is to see a doctor. Look back in their medical history, make sure there aren't any new medications that may be potentially be contributing to increased hair loss. Make sure that their nutritional status is okay. They're eating a well-rounded, healthy diet. You may recommend taking a multivitamin daily. It may be appropriate to check some laboratory tests to make sure that their metabolism is okay, like the thyroid. If everything checks out okay, then the next step is to reassure the patient that, yes, your hair will regrow. You will recover. This is a temporary process. Hairstylist Rebecca Haley echoes Dr. Mir Marani. She's the owner of Parlor Salon here in Washington, D.C. She's been helping clients with COVID-related hair loss find new ways to style their hair as it grows back. She says embrace the change with a new haircut. Don't hold on to it. There are so many amazing shorter hairstyles that you can do that'll totally change the way you feel about the issue. And those who have saw a significant difference in how their hair grew from that point forward. I don't always suggest that maybe you go out and get a particular protective style. I really suggest that people not put too much stress on any hair follicles that are still nice and healthy, and then start using products that are protein-based that can help strengthen the hair and the hair follicle, products that are more bond-building, products that will ensure um, protein is, is, is getting to the hair and the hair follicle, and really do weekly treatments. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, doing the big chop, is like beyond emotional because people, you know, they associate beauty, their self, their identity, legacy, it's wrapped up in the hair, it's their crown. How do you talk them through that? Because they may be like, I don't want to cut my crown. You know, when I sit down with clients, it's really to create a vision. What do you want? What do you want to see? And if you've been dealing with hair loss for the last few months, It is every day you look in the mirror and it's depressing, it's sad. My job is to figure out how to help you. It's probably best that we just start fresh and from there you can move forward. I mean, do you see any difference in like hair that's more tightly coiled, maybe like mine or hair that's finer? Like as far as the hair loss or hair growth or the way the approach that you have to take to the haircut, do you see any difference there? I don't really see much of a difference. I feel like um, I have some clients who've, you know, lost more hair around the hairline. So what we do is we try to design styles that help to conceal that a little bit. I don't always encourage people to go shorter. Maybe it's just changing the structure and the shape of the hairstyle. If I have somebody who's lost a significant amount, which I've definitely seen, and when I say that, I mean 50 to 70%. I really encourage them to go shorter because a lot of times we can find an amazing shape for the hair and for you. 
So no matter if the look is touching the shoulders or it's above the ear, you want a cut that speaks to you. That was Rebecca Hanley, a hairstylist and salon owner here in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. There will be a new vaccine on the market, but not for humans. Last week, the Department of Agriculture conditionally approved the first vaccine for honeybees. It fights against a bacterial infection called American fowl brood. It'll kill the hive. The brood, the new bees, they will, he'll have a snotty, disgusting larva come out. It won't be, you will not hatch out new bees. That's Chris Hyatt president of the American Honey Producers Association. Along with his brothers, Hyatt runs 19,000 hives. Their bees pollinate almond farms. They also took part in the vaccine trials, which were run by a biotech company called Dolan Animal Health. I think I had 800 hives with vaccinated queens, and so far so good. It's early, early stages, but yeah. So I hear you. How do you vaccinate a bee? Do you have tiny little needles? No, the vaccine is put into a sugar candy that the queen bee eats. Queens love candy, if you didn't know that already, and the immunity is passed along to her developing offspring. And the vaccine isn't genetically modified. It contains a little of the dead bacterium. It's a more natural way to control the fowl brood, and we can have healthier hives without using antibiotics, which is harder on the bees. Honeybees are critical. They pollinate all kinds of crops, passion fruit, squash, blueberries, plus plants grown for spices and medicine. But their numbers have been declining because of disease and climate change. Hyatt said he was very excited about what the new vaccine means for keeping bees alive. I just think the potential for, you know, solving hopefully other diseases, maybe we get in the varroa mite or viruses or anything, you know, we're still averaging 40% of the highs dying in the United States every winter. And so hopefully this will continue us down the road. That was the president of the American Honey Producers Association, Chris Hyatt. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The third class wishes are the ones to watch out for. They backfire. That's part of the reason why wishes are regulated in the world of Shubik Lubik. The title, so Shubik Lubik, it's, it's actually kind of a, almost a fairy tale rhyme in Arabic. It's what genies say when they come out of a bottle. So it's sort of like abracadabra. But what it actually means is your wish is my command. That's Dina Mohammed. Her graphic novel is called Shubik Lubik. Thanks so much for talking with us. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell us about this world that you've created in the book where wishes are real things. They've been regulated. There are different classes of them. So the concept of Shabikabik is it's a world where you can buy and sell wishes, and the more expensive they are, the more powerful they are and more likely to grant your wish. So the cheap wishes are sold in cans, and the expensive wishes are sold in bottles. And a first-class wish is much more expensive, yeah. but it will grant your wish very reliably. This immediately creates a sort of classification of wishes, and it also creates an affordability of wishes. When you have a regulation of this, because they're commodities and, and you can buy them from anywhere, then you have to consider what would people be willing to spend a million dollars on. 
to when you were a child, did you dream of having a genie granting you wishes? And what did you wish for? Oh, you know, well, the thing is, it, it's funny because in Arabic, if you say, you know, there's a, a jinn or a jinn who, who would grant you wishes, I do feel like it has this sense of um, you are about to be tricked. Mm. I actually was this kind of child who every night I would think about the three wishes I needed to make, the exact right wishes, so they wouldn't backfire. Mm. And so I felt like I had to make a smart wish, and I, I definitely wasted a lot of time. <laughs> and turns out not all people think like that. No, no. <laughs> what did you, so did you have your standard, like, I know I would wish for this? Yeah, I baseline wish. It's just like that everyone in my family would be healthy and, and live to be like 120 years old. Oh, yeah. That was for some reason, that was the time limit I thought was right. <laughs> That's about, that sound about right. Right? It felt like a good wish. Like I felt like no genie would really trick you with that one, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually when I was researching this book, I would ask people about one wish. Because once it's one instead of three... I think it's it's a lot more interesting. And it's also, if you could buy a wish, I think it really changes how you might think about it. Yeah. And so the story that you focus on that's set in this world is there's a kiosk, and the owner of the kiosk has three first-class wishes, and there's this elderly woman, and she's like, why are you holding on to these? You need to sell them. One of the characters who comes to buy a wish is Aziza, and she's a widow, she's poor. She actually gets caught up by the government because they want the wish, right? It's, it's not just that they want the wish, they also want to control who gets to make them. Yeah. I, one of the sort of keys to narrow down this world when I was conceiving of it is really, it's more or less how wealth already functions in this world. Yeah. It's almost like she came onto this fortune and no one would let her have it. Even though they know exactly where she got it from. It's, uh, do you have the right to use it? Do you have the right to enjoy it sort of uh, line of thinking? So there's Aziza and then there's Noor. They're a university student majoring in wish studies. Um, and Nora is rich. Yes. And Nora is is struggling with depression. And Nora is kind of like, well, I'm rich. Why? What am I sad about? Like, there's a whole struggle of even thinking about depression as a real issue. I think this is a very Egyptian concept because many people, many, many people, when I asked them, what would you wish for? They said rudo, which is like a sort of like contentment. And so when I when I was thinking of the character who would wish for happiness, I thought it would be a character who suffered from depression. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted this portrayal to feel very normal and very almost unromantic. And, and there's a lot of graphs and a lot of numbness to it. It's a very numb portrayal. Depression in Egypt is a very sort of lonely experience it's something very singular and so i wanted this character to be going through it totally alone with like not really telling people about it because i felt like that was more true to the experience of mental health right now yeah it's more about the the decision to help yourself i do want to ask you because the kiosk owner and we're not gonna give away the twist yes, yes. um but it's very complicated and there's this whole thing of wanting to help and the complications that can come from our desires, right? 
Shokri, he, he's, he's a sort of contradictory character because he, he's very judgmental and, and quite bigoted, but he's also very selfless. And Shokri is the, the kiosk owner who had refused to use the wishes because he felt they were against his religion. That's, that's who Shokri is. Yes. He's a character I, I understand very well. <laughs> I think you can't really represent any world without seriously considering how religion works in it. Mm -hmm. And so it was important for me to have like the themes of faith and health in the last part explored as much as possible. It's very hard to talk about the last part without spoiling. Yeah, we don't want to spoil it, but it's re it's really good. Yes. So we don't want to spoil it. Oh, you know, so, um, you know, I asked you earlier about, like, the wishes you make when you're a child. Like, do you make wishes as an adult? Um, and are you still very mindful about what you wish for? I'm even more mindful now, I think. <laughs> I, I honestly would save it. I, I wouldn't use it because I think I would save it for an emergency. Because you just never know. But what what would what would you wish for if you had a first class wish? I think that I would wish for. Okay, so I could be like you know very deep with it, but the real wish would be that I would have enough money, uh, so I ain't got to worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> no. I know I could get real deep with it, and yeah, health for everybody. Of course, you want health and all that stuff. But I feel like if I could get that money right, yeah, yeah it makes I, sense. Yeah, I had I had a conversation with a, a friend, and we really went through all of the possible, like not deep wishes, but you know, all of the possible, like maybe I should wish for like safety, or maybe I should wish to undo like this moment yeah. from my past. And then in the end, we settled on a boat because my friend, after all the considerations, said nothing will make me as happy as a boat. You know, and with the money that I get, then I could buy a boat. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And then all the other stuff, I feel like I could work that I could work that other stuff out. You know what I'm saying? I could work that out. But just, no, just give me a little bit of money. Yeah, it's it's a it's a personal <laughs> thing, I think. It's it's a very context dependent thing. That's Dina Mohammed. Her graphic novel is called Shubik Lubik. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. And and may all your wishes come true as long as they're good ones. Oh, <laughs> yours as well. <laughs> This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. BJ Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It is coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering on Monday, January 30th at WBUR City Space for a conversation and food tasting with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. For tickets, go to wbur.org events.
It's 26 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs reaching the mid-30s. Next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with legendary reporter Bob Woodward. The man knows how to interview presidents, but with Donald Trump, Woodward got more than he bargained for. The phone would ring. Is it one of our daughters? Is it a robocall? Or is it Donald Trump? And it would often be Donald Trump. The Trump Tapes, next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. President Biden is traveling to the southern border today. Find out what he hopes to accomplish. And Ukraine is gaining ground against Russia, but is it time to start negotiating an end to the war? This former U.S. official says yes. Going all the way may mean years of further destruction in Ukraine. So I think that as the war goes on, the Ukrainian position may become more flexible. Plus, a new study looks at why humans walk the way we do. It's all about the double bounce. It's Sunday, January 8th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Congress is preparing to get to work after a chaotic week in which it took 15 rounds of voting to elect California Republican Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. McCarthy had to make a number of concessions to a hard-right faction within his party to claim the gavel. And NPR's Susan Davis reports House Republicans and McCarthy himself are facing challenges moving forward. Any bill signed into law is going to be signed by Democratic President Joe Biden. So even if he can keep 218 Republicans unified behind a conservative agenda in the House, it's really not going to go anywhere in the broader Congress. I think the most consequential clash down the road that people are watching for in the coming months is how McCarthy is going to navigate some must-pass votes to raise the debt limit or risk an unprecedented national default, and also how to keep the government open at the end of the fiscal year in September. NPR's Susan Davis reporting. President Biden heads to El Paso, Texas today, his first trip to the southern border since becoming president. The trip comes as Biden is under political pressure to address border issues. Newport News City Council member John Ely is among those expressing shock and outrage after a Virginia elementary school teacher was gravely injured when she was shot with a handgun by a six-year-old student in her first grade classroom. That teacher could have lost her life. That student, that child, he could have lost his life. How did this child even know how to use a gun at six years old. You know, authorities say the teacher suffered life-threatening injuries. She remains hospitalized, but Newport News's mayor said this weekend she is showing signs of improvement. Police say she was shot after an altercation with the boy and that he remains in custody. It's not clear how he obtained the firearm. Condemnation is pouring in from around the world after Iran's government this weekend executed two men who took part in human rights protests. 
Terry Schultz reports the European Union is calling on the regime to stop carrying out executions. The EU says it's appalled by the executions of two more people involved in demonstrations against the Iranian government. The EU's foreign policy spokesperson says the bloc reiterates its demand that Iranian authorities immediately stop imposing and carrying out death sentences against protesters. The EU also calls on the regime to annul without delay all death sentences which have been announced against demonstrators. The Dutch government is making a formal complaint to the Iranian ambassador for the second time in a month and urges other EU countries to do the same. The EU has so far imposed sanctions on 20 individuals and Iranian state media for their roles in the harsh crackdown on the protests that began in September. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. The U.S. is also condemning the executions. The U.S. Special Envoy to Iran, Robert Malley, says they followed sham trials and must stop. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark says a concession to extreme right conservatives from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy gives the GOP leverage to cut Social Security and Medicare. Appearing on CNN this morning, Clark said the fight over raising the debt ceiling is going to lead to a major showdown between Democrats and Republicans. Let's look back at the Inflation Reduction Act, where Democrats put in place $1.7 trillion in deficit reduction. And how many votes did we get from the Republican side of the aisle? Zero. Those were tax increases, right? Not spending cuts? It is tax enforcement. House Republicans say they only want spending cuts to be part of new debt ceiling negotiations. Police say a swastika was found painted on the sidewalk Friday in Swampscott. The white spray-painted Nazi symbol was found at Reddington Street and Forest Avenue. Police are asking area residents to check home camera footage from Friday afternoon to look for anyone involved. Several swastikas have been found in Swampscott and neighboring North Shore communities in recent years. Dozens of musicians will gather in Brighton this evening to protest the eviction of a low-cost music rehearsal space and recording studio. California developer IQHQ says it plans to build more than 350,000 square feet of lab and office space at the site of the Sound Museum. The developer told the musicians to leave the property by the end of this month. Protesters are demanding that the eviction be delayed until a promised replacement space for musicians is up and running. In sports this afternoon, in the final game of the regular season, the Patriots are on the road against the Buffalo Bills. If the Pats win today, they make the playoffs. Tonight, the Bruins are in Anaheim against the Ducks. It's 29 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, highs in the mid-30s, lows tonight in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, becoming sunny and highs in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for being here with us today. If you stayed up late on Friday night, you might have seen House Republicans shout and wrangle until they got the votes needed to get California's Kevin McCarthy the Speaker's gavel. But what remains is a House with a narrow and clearly unaligned Republican majority which is likely to make governing tricky, to say the least. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith joins us now. Welcome to the show, Tam. Hey, Aisha. So a few months ago, we were watching President Biden struggle with members of his own party, holding up his economic agenda, although I don't think any pushing or shoving happened that we know (laughs) about. Um, But now the Democrats must really be relishing all of this chaos in the Republican Party. Oh, indeed they are. Back then, Republicans were gloating that Dems were in disarray. And now it is President Biden who can't look away uh, as McCarthy faced failed vote after failed vote. Um, And there are some unavoidable big votes coming in this year that Republicans won't want to take. Passing a budget, raising the debt ceiling. Uh, Biden is positioning himself to say Republicans are the party of chaos. And this past week certainly didn't hurt that. As for McCarthy, the next big test of his speakership comes on Monday when the House votes on a rules package that is basically going to determine how the body will operate in the next two years. And it includes a lot of concessions that McCarthy made to the rebels uh, that may be hard for moderates to swallow. So the president is stopping in El Paso today before heading to Mexico City. Um, Let's start with what he's doing on the U.S. side of the border today. Well, he's been under a lot of pressure from Republicans to go to the border and see conditions there himself for a long time, though uh, they are now arguing that he's getting a sanitized version by visiting the port of entry at El Paso. Biden will meet with local officials, Customs and Border Patrol agents and local organizations helping migrants. Um, He is making this trip just as he announced a new big push to reduce the flow of migrants trying to enter the country at the border. But the president is getting a lot of pushback from activists about that new immigration policy, right? Yeah, the politics here are really tough for him. This is a real, undeniable humanitarian crisis, and inaction wasn't an option. But he's being hit from all sides. On the right, he's accused of being too lenient for creating a new legal pathway to the U.S. for people fleeing violence in Nicaragua, Haiti, Venezuela, and Cuba. On the left, the blowback has been even more intense, accusing Biden of extending inhumane Trump-era policies by expanding the number of people who will be turned away without their asylum claims even being considered. Uh, Biden today is going to call for Congress, as he has many times before, to pass comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, But of course, that is easier said than done. Congress has been trying and failing to do that for more than a decade now. Okay, so now you're in Mexico City. What are we expecting from the president's visit there today? Well, the biggest thing happening today is President Biden's arrival in Mexico, which, believe it or not, has come with its own diplomatic intrigue. Uh, Mexico's President Andres Manuel López Obrador publicly asked Biden to fly into a new airport that's been a pet project of his. But that airport is 25 miles outside of the city and really quite inconvenient. In the end, though, the U.S. agreed to have Biden land there. Uh, And it says a lot about the relationship between the Mexican president and the U.S., uh, says Carlos Bravo Regidor, a political analyst based in Mexico City I spoke with. Maybe for an American audience, it would seem like, oh, what a small detail. But, you know, it it explains a lot. 
He says Lopez Obrador has been tweaking Biden since before he even took office, uh, mostly for domestic political purposes. Lopez Obrador sorts of behaves as if he knows, and he's probably right in this, that he has Biden, so to speak, grabbed by the border. Though Mexico did just agree to take in more migrants uh, that the U.S. turns away, 30,000 a month. We may learn more during this trip what Mexico got out of that deal. There will be a summit here in Mexico City in the next couple of days with both the, the leader of Canada and Mexico, as well as President Biden. That's NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been more than 10 months since Russia invaded Ukraine. And while both sides have suggested at various times that they're open to peace talks, no public effort is underway. Georgetown professor of international affairs Charles Kupchin says it's time to get serious about negotiations. He's also a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and joins us now. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you. So Ukraine at this point seems to be doing pretty well in the war. They're regaining territory they lost last spring. They're causing some serious damage to the Russian army and its troops. Given all of that, why is now the time for negotiations? Well, I think that it makes sense for three different reasons. One is that this is a war that's doing enormous damage to Ukraine. We're hearing there are up to 100,000 casualties and deaths on both sides. And I do worry about the risks of escalation. Escalation either because Russia tries to interdict weapons that are coming in and hits NATO territory, or because Putin uses nuclear weapons. The second concern is the global blowback effects. We are seeing very serious shortages of food, rising energy prices. And then finally, even though the U.S. and Europe have demonstrated remarkable solidarity and resolve, I do think we have to ask, could this coalition go wobbly eventually? So I know that you've argued in op-eds that a peace deal would likely need to include Ukraine giving up its aspirations to join NATO. Why do you think that would help and why do you think that's necessary? I think that Putin invaded Ukraine for a number of reasons, but there's no question that he was concerned about NATO showing up on the other side of Russia's thousand mile plus border with Ukraine. And so I do think that a lasting and stable peace for the region does require Ukrainian neutrality, armed neutrality. Yeah, I guess that's one of my one of my questions then is Ukraine wants to be in NATO so that it can protect itself from Russia. Russia has shown it is very aggressive towards Ukraine. So how would Ukraine be safe um, without being a part of the alliance? It would be safe through armaments, continuing armaments of the sort that we see now. And I'm guessing that part of the strategy of the Biden administration is not just giving Ukraine the ability to take back more territory and blunt the Russian attack. It is also investing in Ukraine's military for the long term. So you've also said that these negotiations, if there is a, an agreement reached, that it would likely need to have some sort of territorial settlement 
that means likely that Ukraine would have to give up some of the land that Russia occupies right now. There are people that, you know, I've talked to on this show that say that would be rewarding Russia's aggression. Is it rewarding them if Russia gets some of that territory? Everything else being equal, Ukraine should succeed in driving Russia completely from its territory. The question, though, is at what cost? And I do think that it would be hard for Putin to swallow complete defeat. And as a consequence, yes, hard decisions have to be made about how far Ukraine goes. I don't think that we should overstate the consequences of that outcome. Would it be to reward Russia's effort to grab land from its neighbor? Yes. But is it the end of the rules-based system? Is it a grievous setback for democracy? No. You mentioned the cost of this war, and there has been an incredible cost to Ukraine. Is part of the issue that it may be hard for Ukrainians to accept anything other than total victory because of what they have been through? No question that Zelensky faces a domestic populace that is angry and should be angry. And yes, there is pressure in Ukrainian politics to go all the way. On the other hand, going all the way may mean years of further destruction in Ukraine, may mean the possible use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. So I think that as the war goes on, the Ukrainian position may become more flexible. What, what role do you see the U.S. and President Biden playing in, you know, trying to get these negotiations to come about? You know, and, and, and do you think that some of this may already be happening behind the scenes? Well, President Biden has been explicit since the war began that the U.S. goal here is to put Ukraine in as good a position as possible at the negotiating table. So Washington envisages some kind of diplomatic endgame. But I don't think we're yet at the point of seeing serious negotiations launched. Charles Kupchin is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and a professor at Georgetown. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018 and ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday, our conversation with Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. WBUR occasionally gives you the chance to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising. You're not required to make a donation to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated entities are not eligible for drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. It's 29 degrees in Boston, sunshine today, and highs reaching the mid-30s. This is WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. President Biden is leaving Washington today to make his first visit as president to the southern border. He is to stop in El Paso on his way to the North American Leaders Summit in Mexico City. The mayor of Newport News, Virginia, says a teacher who was critically injured when she was shot Friday by a six-year-old student is showing signs of improvement. She remains hospitalized, but Mayor Philip Jones says her condition is trending in a positive direction. And in California, more than half a million customers remain without power from stormy weather that's been moving in from the Pacific. And the National Weather Service is warning of what it calls a relentless parade of storms this week. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized weight loss program based in psychology for helping people change their habits and conquer their goals. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. And from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at LifeLock.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. For nearly three years, China and its 1.4 billion people were cut off from the rest of the world by strict pandemic border restrictions. But China lifted most of those restrictions in December, and some Chinese people are preparing to travel again. NPR's Emily Fang reports. Danqi, an English literature teacher in Shanghai, had a singular thought when she heard restrictions were being rolled back. The first thing that came into my mind was to replace my expired passport. During the pandemic, China made it very difficult to get or renew passports to discourage people from leaving the country. But last month, Danqi got her new travel documents easily. Yet she's nervous as she contemplates traveling to London this year to visit her brother. I mean, we've all been locked inside, kind of locked inside for three years now. I mean, it's a bit scary to think about going abroad and doing all these things. That's why most outbound Chinese travelers don't seem to be going far. Three-fourths of travel agencies surveyed by a Chinese trade firm said their client's top choice was Southeast Asia, which doesn't require negative COVID tests from travelers departing from China, unlike, say, the U.S., Liu Wei is a diving instructor based on Thailand's Koh Tao Island. He's preparing for a busy season ahead for the first time in three years. We're fully booked, but we're still waiting on more flights to be scheduled from China. And we have several diving boat tours we sold before the pandemic we still need to fulfill. 
In 2019 alone, Chinese residents made 155 million trips abroad and spent $130 billion in other countries. During the pandemic, that huge flow of global tourism was suddenly cut off. But the day after China announced the end of border restrictions, Trip.com, one of China's biggest booking platforms, saw bookings abroad jump by more than 250%. And that's got Robert Ravens excited. He manages Britisto, a lavender farm in Tasmania, which makes a purple lavender stuffed bear called Bobby. It created an absolute mania. Because after the fragrant bear went viral in China, some 30,000 Chinese visitors a year started visiting Britisto. We had to introduce a ballot system so that when you came in the gate, you were given a ticket which allowed you to buy a bear. And people were trading tickets in our car park. They were doing it. Was, it was mania. Then in early 2020, China closed its borders and all of a sudden, Britisto was getting zero Chinese tourists straining their finances. But now Ravens expects visitor numbers to jump again and he's used the pandemic time to improve the farm, though he doesn't think Chinese tourist numbers will return entirely to pre-pandemic levels. The world is begging for tourism and so the competition from Japan and Thailand and you know, all the classic Asian countries for the, the Chinese tourists is going to be intense. Musk Wong agrees. He's a salesperson in Paris at a luxury French jewelry brand. Before the pandemic, 90% of his clients in France were Chinese. So he's seen his income drop about a third after China closed its borders. Many of his old clients say they're not in a hurry to travel to Paris yet. People think less about luxury goods as these are not their basic needs. And more and more luxury goods are now sold directly in China. But Musk says business at his Parisian office is still brisk. Most of his new clients are American. And he says his brand is focused on winning back French customers. China is not currently their top priority. Emily Fang, NPR News. Medical flexible spending accounts can save you lots of money, but they can also come back to haunt you. That's because whatever money you have left over in your account at the end of the spending period goes back to your employer. For some people, that deadline was December 31st. Others have until March 15th, but, you know, even though that's some time, they still got to hurry up. UCLA professor Steve Bank joins us now to explain why these accounts work this way. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, Professor Bank, you know, what's the deal with these accounts? Like, why do you have to give up your own money at the end of the spending period? Well, one way to think about it is it's not really your own money. It's now, not you may my object money. to that. <laughs> Here's the way that Congress thinks about it, or at least the way they originally thought about it. Flexible spending accounts are a way for you to make a deal with your employer that in lieu of your salary, you're going to take certain benefits. It's not you took your salary and you put it into an account that was yours. It's you took some salary equivalent and took benefits instead and the salary is taxed, this is not taxed. Exactly. You are, part of the deal is, is you get it tax-free. Part of the downside is, is they tell you what you can spend it on and how much you can spend. But I guess I want to ask too, is like, why can't that money roll over from year to year? 
you have to understand a little bit about the history to understand what it's called the use it or lose it provision. Originally, the flexible spending accounts had no cap. You could divert half your salary to flexible spending accounts and that would be okay. The concern was that people were doing it to avoid taxes on their salary, right? It's essentially a shelter. So user to lose it says, hey, you have to predict this is what you're going to spend on health costs. You can only spend it on these eligible medical expenses, and you have to do it within a year. Okay. But then that leads to situations like a situation that I was in where I lost some money because I, you know, I didn't quite know what I was doing with the FSA. It was my first year. Money Magazine last year estimated that people forfeited more than $3 billion a year through these FSAs. That's a lot of money. Where does it go? Yeah, that is a lot of money. And the money is essentially back to the employer. The employer essentially never spent it. You agreed with a flexible spending account to reduce your salary. The employer agreed to provide you a benefit. If you don't use that benefit, then the employer just never had to spend on it. People do have this thing called transportation flexible spending accounts that they use on, like, parking and public transportation. For those, you can roll over your balance from one year to the next. Like, if that works for transportation, why not for health care? Or is, you know, Congress being logical, right? Like, is there really a big difference between, like, spending on transportation or spending on health care? Some of the explanation for the differences in the treatment is that they were enacted at different times in history. So the original is the health care flexible spending account. That was in part to provide a benefit to workers when CEOs and top executives of corporations had for years in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s been diverting part of their salary to benefits that were only for them, healthcare benefits only for them, but they're very worried about flexible spending accounts being used to avoid taxes, and so they they put this use it or lose it. The transportation FSA is much more recent. This was enacted at a time when Congress was feeling, in some ways, uh, less concerned about the tax avoidance risks that you would divert all your salary there. There is a technical explanation for a difference between transportation and health, but in general, they were in different time periods. Some lucky people still have almost two and a half months to spend the balance in their flexible spending accounts. Do you have any advice for those people? Think about the things that you need, but you might not otherwise spend on. So if there's a doctor, like a dermatologist or something that's not covered by your health insurance, it might be time to schedule an appointment, right? That would be probably a more useful way of using your flexible spending account as a push to spend on sort of necessary medical expenses that people often forego because it's not covered by their health insurance. That's Steve Bank. He's the Paul Hastings Professor of Business Law at UCLA. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, comes out next week, and the British tabloids are all over it. In the Daily Mirror... Prince Harry's brutal one-man mission to destroy the family he left behind sees no one spared. The Sun has this. I did coke and weed and had a bad trip off mushrooms where a bin started talking to me, says Prince Harry. 
These tabloids play a huge role in Britain's complex media landscape, and as Prince Harry promotes his book, we're expecting to hear more about his accusations that members of the royal family placed in leaked stories about him and his wife, Meghan, Duchess of Sussex. We're joined now by Adrian Bingham. He's a professor of history at the University of Sheffield and co-author of Tabloid Century. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So Prince Harry claims that his own family has been briefing the tabloids against him and his wife for years. Like, what do you make of that allegation? Well, we never know the full story of who's briefing whom behind closed doors, but it's it's very clear that for decades the palace and different members of the royal family have had press operations, words in the ear of editors to not run stories, to close certain things down. But absolutely, there's been a, a detailed press management operation, you know, right throughout uh, recent decades. The royal family is the national soap opera in, yes. in Britain. You know, the cast of characters slowly change, but there is an insatiable appetite for this material in, in the public realm. That's why we get this drip feed of stories and, and endless front pages. How reliable are the stories in, you know, these tabloids? Are they the truth? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, one of the revelations that we've got from Harry in the new book is that the press had a story uh, that he was taking cocaine, which he at the time denied, but which he has now admitted. So some stories that were discredited um, back in the day, you know, sometimes later on turn out to be the truth. I mean, I think there's clearly things that are uh, fabricated, but what the press knows is that we as readers and consumers and viewers, we're hypocrites because sometimes we might castigate the press for its intrusion and they know that we will buy the newspapers, whether it's true or not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so Harry and, and Meghan have also talked about racism and misogyny in the British press. Do they have a point? I mean, it it has been a huge issue, especially with Megan. Yeah, I think gender and race have played a part. The British press does not have a good track record on issues of race, of gender either, and has long had a sort of pin-up culture. But I think it's important to say that when Harry and Meghan got married, there was a whole host of you know gushing coverage and, and celebratory uh, coverage. So it's not always been negative and it's not always been on a war footing. Have the, the strategies of tabloids evolved over time? The way that they handle stories, do they hold back more or less now? I think in terms of sort of reporting and finding stories, they're probably actually more restrained now than they were, say, in the late 80s, early 90s, where it's pretty much a wild west. So some of the the bugging and hacking of phones, which we know went on in the 90s and early noughties, some of the long lens photography, uh, that happens less. On the other hand, there's also a whole host of commentators now who are offering their own opinion and, and deliberately trying to generate controversy and talking points around Harry and Meghan. Yeah, the hot take uh, industry, um, which does seem to be booming. And and we should say that Meghan did successfully sue the publisher of the Daily Mail for violating her privacy when it printed her personal letters to her father. 
That's right. I think what's remarkable about this, though, is uh, this particular episode is that Harry is revealing all this himself, and this is where we are sort of in new territory. This level of revelation from one of the senior royals is very, very unusual. And this is where it could complicate matters because you know, the press will now say, well, Harry is intruding into his own privacy, therefore we can pursue him. He can't you know, claim that he has uh, an entitlement to privacy if he's breaking it himself. So we might see Harry being pursued more aggressively in, in the coming sort of months, mm-hmm. I would expect. Adrian Bingham co-wrote the book Tabloid Century and is a professor of history at the University of Sheffield. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Good morning, and thanks for spending time with us here at 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Members of the Massachusetts All-Democratic Congressional Delegation are assessing the challenges ahead after the drawn-out election of Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Congressman Jake Auchincloss of Newton says the House GOP is still groveling to the extreme right. The inmates are running the asylum. It's worth drawing some contrast here. Two years ago, House Democrats fought off an insurrection, ensured the peaceful transfer of power, and then went on to finally get an infrastructure law passed, went on to get tough and smart on China by onshoring manufacturing and semiconductors, and finally empowered Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Now, Kevin McCarthy and the House GOP take over. They have the exact same margins that we had, and (laughs) they proceeded to fight each other for a week. So it's an inauspicious beginning for their ability to govern as a party. Kevin McCarthy made a lot of concessions to the extreme right members of his own party. Which ones trouble you the most and why? The Holman rule is a grievous issue to me. The Holman rule allows legislators to zero out the salaries of individual civil servants within the executive branch. That means that a scientific expert, a national security expert, comes to Congress, testifies, tells truth to power. Republicans don't like what they hear. They can go into the budget and excise that individual's salary. That is not how a free and open democracy should function. But broadly speaking, the totality of what these rules do is they empower the fringes. They really eviscerate the power of the gavel and instead allow individual House GOP members to gridlock Congress over individual issues. And with 435 cats and dogs in the House of Representatives, it's just a recipe to get nothing done. Well, you say the Democrats are going to be working on issues including women's rights, gun safety measures, clean energy. But given this atmosphere that you have described in the chamber, specifically, how do you expect Democrats to work with the Republicans to achieve things? Is it harder now that we don't have the gavel? Of course it is. doesn't mean we can't hit singles and doubles. A lot of it is going to depend on the relationship, ironically enough, between Mitch McConnell and House Democrats. Can he produce nine votes in the Senate to get through the filibuster? And then can we jam uh, Kevin McCarthy in the House to bring issues to the floor and get them done? The debt ceiling will, of course, be a hallmark issue, but there's going to be 
several others that I hope we can get done that way. But we just we can't sit still. There's there's too much going on. We got to compete with the Chinese Communist Party. We got to lower costs in energy, housing, health care, child care. We have got to ensure clean energy independence as a country and make progress towards our Paris Accord commitments. Do you have any very precise ideas about how you plan to jam Kevin McCarthy? Well, you can bring issues to the floor through uh, discharge petitions. You can uh, bring uh, Democrats over to vote with moderate Republicans. It's going to be case by case. This is something that we've been dealing with for three, four terms now, which is a House GOP that is really fractured internally between a Trump wing and a wing that wants to govern. They've been at a fork in the road for years. They are failing to go down the path of governance, uh, but you can still pick off individual members to get things done. You saw that with the bipartisan infrastructure law. You saw that with chips and science. Uh, you saw that with electoral count act reform in the last uh, bipartisan gun safety. There's a number of measures that we have been able to pull moderate Republicans over on, and we're going to have to continue working that flank of the party. How concerned are you about federal funding for infrastructure projects in Massachusetts, given that already when Democrats have control of the House and Senate, there has been difficulty in securing funding for the replacement of the Bourne and Sagamore bridges? Well, I know my colleague, Representative Keating, and our senators are laser focused on getting that funding, and we're going to as a delegation continue to row in that direction. Massachusetts has gotten 13 to $14 billion at my last count of monies that can be spent on everything from upgrading HVAC for schools to ensuring clean water, to fixing our roads, bridges, transit, electrical grid, and high-speed internet. That money has been authorized and appropriated, and we are absolutely gonna scrap and fight with the other 49 states for our fair share. Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss. Join us tomorrow morning for reports from Washington on the new Congress here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. It is 29 degrees in Boston with plenty of sunshine today and highs in the mid-30s. Overnight lows dipping to the mid-20s and then tomorrow mostly cloudy start to your Monday, becoming sunny later and highs tomorrow reaching the mid-40s. Tuesday should be mostly sunny with temperatures in the upper 30s. This is WBUR. I'm Christopher Lydon. Next time on Open Source, The Magician is History Out of the Shadows, the story of Thomas Mann, the Death in Venice novelist and German demigod, wrestling with Nazi savagery and his own sexual secrets, all brought to life by the Irish novelist Colm Tobin of Brooklyn fame. Writing that matters next on Open Source, today at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, following the journey of Lewis and Clark while small ship cruising along the Columbia and Snake Rivers. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com slash NPR. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U. Com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle.
Joining us now, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hi there, Will. Hey, good morning, Aisha. Welcome back. Yes, I am glad to be back. I missed the puzzle these last two weeks, but I'm glad that you guys soldiered on without me. We did. <laughs> Could you remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, I said name a U.S. state capital for which the name of another well-known U.S. city means exactly the opposite, and the second city has a population of more than 100,000. The answer is Little Rock, capital of Arkansas, and that is the opposite of Boulder, Colorado. This week's challenge was really popular. A lot of people got this. There were nearly 2,000 correct entries. Our puzzle winner for this week is Susan Gilmore of West Hartford, Connecticut. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. And how long have you been playing the puzzle, Susan? Uh, I've been listening for years, but this is only the second time I've submitted an answer. And the first time I tried, my answer was wrong. So what do you do when you're not playing the puzzle? I'm an English professor at Central Connecticut State. I like birding, and I also sing in two women's choirs and a mixed voice group called Rock Voices. That's amazing. So what are you, soprano, alto? What's your, what's your, where are you at? I'm a, I'm a first soprano, but in a smaller chamber group, I sometimes sing second alto. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. I've. That I've always wanted to sing, so that means you can hit them high notes and you can also get kind of low with it. You do both. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so then I know you're ready to play the puzzle because if you could do all that, you ready. Oh, I hope so. Well, <laughs> we'll take it away. All right, Susan and Aisha, every answer today is a word that has somewhere inside it a common family name. I'll give you the family names. And clues to the words, you tell me the words. For example, if I said rice, R-I-C-E, and it's a muscle of the upper arm, you would say triceps, which contains R-I-C-E inside it. Here we go. Number one is lane, L-A-N-E. And that's inside a word that is earth or Mars. Planet. Planet, there you go. And planet contains L-A-N-E, hidden inside it. Number two is Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N. And your clue is hurting, as from a sting. Smarting. Smarting is it. West, W-E-S-T, filled with astonishment. Oh, I shouldn't know this. If you are filled with astonishment, you are starting with the letter A. Awestruck. Awestruck is it. Cooper, C-O-O-P-E-R, refusing to help as in an investigation. Uncooperative? You got it. Chang, C-H-A-N-G, a heavenly being of a very high rank. An archangel. Ooh, you're good. Ellis, E-L-L-I-S, infernal. Infer hellish? Hellish, yes. And your last one is Roman, R-O-M-A-N to oversee every single detail of. Oh, man. Micromanage. Micromanage. Nice job. You did an amazing job, Susan. Like, oh, thanks so especially much. Especially with that last one, micromanaging. Oh, my goodness. Woo! How do you feel? 
Oh, I, you know, I, I thought I was going to say relief, but truly this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what we want. We want everyone to have a great time. So for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin, as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Susan, what member station do you listen to? Okay, as a kid, I used to wake up to Morning Pro Musica on WGBH, but now it's WNPR Hartford. That's Susan Gilmore of West Hartford, Connecticut. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you. All right, Will, so what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Michelle Valancourt of St. Paul, Minnesota. Name a famous living person, first and last names, if you drop the last letter of the first name, you get an element on the periodic table. And if you drop the last letter of the last name, you get the chemical symbol of another element. What celebrity is this? So again, famous living person, first and last names, drop the last letter of the first name, you get an element, and drop the last letter of the last name, and you get a chemical symbol of another element. What celebrity is this? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, January 12th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Walking upright is central to human evolution and sets humanity apart. But there's one element of the human gait that's been puzzling researchers for a long time. It's our double bounce. And a group of scientists at the Technical University of Munich have been looking into it. Daniel Renievsky is a mechanical engineer and lecturer there. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Nice to have you. So tell us about this double bounce that humans have. So I think the easiest way to think about that is to think about our leg as a spring. And so initially, when we hit the ground with our foot, this spring compresses. And so the force increases quite a bit. And we have the first force hump. And then we have a rebound. So the spring relaxes again. Our whole body moves up and we fall back into the spring. And this gives us the second force hump. And we reach the peak of this um, hump just before the next touchdown occurs. And so this double hump force pattern is well known for decades now, but we don't really know why it developed in this way okay. and what the function behind it is. And what we found is that it seems to be really crucial to bipedal upright gait. And that is just a bipedal, that's walking on two legs right. upright. Absolutely okay. right. Yes. And so there are a couple of factors if we look at human gait that are really special. One is that we are having fairly heavy legs in comparison to other animals and, and even like other bipeds. So if you think mm -hmm. the largest population of bipeds on Earth are actually birds. Um, oh, my goodness. And they're, whew. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I don't like birds. <laughs> <laughs> No, so, but they do have very skinny legs. They have very, very skinny, skinny legs. legs, yes. And so <laughs> we have developed a quite special kind of locomotion with walking. Okay. And so what did your study find about why we 
walk in this unique way, specifically with that double bounce? So what we found is that it is really crucial in order to walk economically to load your ankle joint to then release this torque really explosively like a catapult to shoot your leg forward. And in order to facilitate this ankle loading, we think this is the reason why the second force hump developed. We looked a little bit into the evolution of human gait. And what we found is that our ancestors did something that is called endurance hunting. And endurance hunting is something where animals essentially just run away from you and you don't run after them, but you just walk after them. So you essentially walk more efficient, like running is, is a little bit more uh, inefficient. So you spend more energy on running. And if I chase you, but I don't run after you, but just walk after you, you will essentially spend more energy and I give you less time to recover. Wow. And so I can That's do that like for Michael a very Myers. long time. Yeah, yes, yeah. Just <laughs> like Michael Myers. He walks down his prey. Right. I get it. I get it. Okay. <laughs> and so that might be a reason why we developed this kind of guide. Wow. I done, got, I done learned some things just in this conversation. But what is the significance of this discovery? Like, how yeah. can you apply this information? So when it comes to remobilization of humans, like building prosthesis, building exoskeletons, also thinking about gait rehabilitation, you want to know what the mechanics of walking are, and you really want to implement them in these devices. And if we look at um, prosthetics today, they definitely expend more energy than if we walk on our natural two legs. And so I think this is really the important application here, a different way to build prosthetics, to build gait rehabilitation devices, and to control also exoskeletons. That's Daniel Renievsky of the Technical University of Munich. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Have a great day. This January marks the delayed 10th anniversary of the Prototype Festival in New York. Last year's festival was canceled because of Omicron. The annual event presents new operas and music theater works in intimate settings. And in its short history, Prototype has produced two works that won the Pulitzer Prize. And many more have had substantial lives beyond the festival. Jeff London reports. Until a few years ago, Irish composer Emma O'Halloran hadn't even considered writing an opera. Because it seemed so grand and fancy and I didn't really feel like I would be a person who would be able to do something like that. But she tried her hand at a short opera which won an award. Because of that, Prototype co-founder Beth Morrison commissioned her to write a new piece called Trade, which will debut in this year's festival. There was a Beth Morrison says Prototype was founded to produce operas that weren't fancy and presented in grand theaters. We were trying to create a black box opera movement, and so we were really invested in the possibilities of what intimate opera and music theater could be. Another co-founder, Kristen Marding, runs here, a downtown New York arts center. It has two flexible small spaces, black boxes, where many prototype shows have premiered. We saw this potential to have these large voices in this intimate context 
and to also have these phenomenal musicians that are so close to you and you can have this sound really embody you, envelop you and wash over you in a completely different way. In the 10 years the festival has been around, it's produced dozens of adventurous, genre-busting new works. Among them, Angel's Bone, an allegorical piece about two fallen angels who get abused and trafficked by a suburban couple. With a libretto by Royce Vavrick and a score by Chinese-born composer Du Yun, it won the Pulitzer Prize in 2017. Some of the music evokes the Renaissance, some is pure punk. Prototype workshopped Angel's Bone before presenting the final production, which helped its creators hone the piece. Du Yun says she not only appreciates the support, but being part of something bigger. It's incredibly powerful and empowering to be feeling like a part of a movement, if you will. And I think prototype gives me a sense of community. Du Yun has a new piece premiering this year. Prototype nurtured another Pulitzer winner when it presented Prism, an opera with text by Roxy Perkins and score by Ellen Reed. It's another piece that deals with a difficult subject. Composer Ellen Reed. It was a many year journey to discover how to deal with something as sensitive and reactive as the trauma after a sexual assault in a way that was also pleasing and big enough for the stage. So it took us a while to figure out how to navigate all of that in a narrative and make it work in the medium of opera. Like Angel's Bone, Prism received the support from Prototype to develop the opera in workshops. Producer Beth Morrison says the festival welcomes intense work. We really like drama, and we think that opera theater, music theater, has the tools to take those kinds of stories. I mean, there are incredible, great, dark, dramatic, whatever you want to say, stories all through the opera canon. And I think we feel like we're just adding to that. She hopes the trade, which Emma O'Halloran created with her uncle, Irish playwright Mark O'Halloran, will be part of the canon as well. The opera is about two straight married men who meet for a sexual encounter. I've been worried about you, you know. Why? I couldn't stop. Not since the last time. Not since then. For her part, O'Halloran says she's thrilled to be a member of the prototype community. I've definitely talked with past composers, and uh, I'm just like a sponge. I absorb everything they say, or like when someone's got a tip about, like, oh, you really should write this way for this particular voice. I'm making notes and all of that sort of stuff. So you'll see all of the previous composers attending all the shows, and it's just lovely. It's really wonderful. For NPR News, 
I'm Jeff London in New York. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up at noon, Bob Woodward discusses the Trump tape, his interviews with the former president about January 6th and more. Make sure you listen to that at noon. It's 29 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the mid-30s. Lows in the mid-20s overnight. Tomorrow, after a mostly cloudy start, becoming sunny and highs in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Best of lists can be fodder for arguing over who did or didn't make the cut. But Aisha Harris of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour says lists can be useful. Another benefit of these lists is that you're not just arguing about who was left off, but maybe you're turned on to something you wouldn't have been turned on to before. I'm Andrew Limbong. Are best of lists more than just clickbait? On the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.